This presentation was recorded at the Western Fellowship Teachers Institute. For more information about the Institute, call 541-999-7467 or email jolasmucker at gmail.com. That's J-O-L-A-S-M-U-C-K-E-R at gmail.com. Welcome everyone to this class on flexibility and teaching approach. If you don't want to be here, fine. There's the door. That's the class you ended up in. This plane is going there. <laughs> I'm going to ask you all a question to get us all thinking together. I want you to think about this question a little bit and then respond. What are we talking about when we're talking about flexibility and teaching approach? What is it? While you prepare your response, I'm going to read to you uh, one page. This is out of the, the uh, teacher development course, which we were discussing yesterday a bit. So I'm going to give you a little sample of that. And I think it introduces this class. I don't have a lot of comment. I'm just going to read the first page, okay? All right, so the, the first thing I'm seeing here is learning with, without understanding. 11-year-old Peter is an old colony Mennonite boy who attends a traditional village school in northern Mexico. Although he has been attending school since the age of six, he can barely read. And we said he was how old? Eleven. He can recite pages and pages from the book of Bible questions and answers and articles of faith called the Catechismus or something like that. But he can understand very little of it since it is written in German. And he doesn't speak German. In another year, he will be 12, old enough by colony standards to stop school. He will become one of the thousands who are practically illiterate in spite of their six or seven years of schooling. How can such a thing happen? Well, let's go to school with Peter today. Our first impression is that of a dimly lit room with little more than chalkboards to break the whiteness of the painted walls. There are no maps, incentive charts, dictionaries, shelves of books, children's artwork, or even a clock. Around 50 children ages 6 through 12 crowd into this room to be taught, in quotations, by one schoolmaster. The children spend hours reciting school rules, the catechismus, and multiplication tables without understanding the meaning of what they are saying. They painstakingly copy Vorschriften in beautiful German script, but with little idea what the verses say. Beginners learn to read by memorizing words, not by the phonics method. Math problems are figured out, are figured out by using tally marks. The teacher is not expected to fill out report cards, give tests, keep records of grades or attendance, nor does he ever meet with other teachers for conferences or classes. By the time Peter drops out of school, he will have spent over a thousand hours reciting questions and answers from the catechismus. Some years later, before he is baptized, he will answer all these questions again, still not understanding their meaning. Tens of thousands of old colony Mennonites live in Mexico, excuse me, in Mexico, and over half of them cannot read and write. In the book called, I'm sorry, in the book Called to Mexico, one author writes, in their quest to keep the faith, the old colony Mennonites resist dangerous outside influences to their schools amid their resettlements from land to land and clung tightly to the few resources they had. Eventually, this mentality developed into an ever-narrowing spiral that led to illiteracy and nearly insurmountable spiritual needs. In 1990s, a group of Amish from the United States were invited to come to Mexico and help the old colony Mennonites establish better schools. Their experiences are compiled in the book 
called to Mexico. These schools have become beacons of hope for a better future. I'm just going to keep on reading until I run out of page here. The same mistake. We can easily see where the traditional old colony schools are failing their children. How can anyone imagine that learning has been accomplished simply because something, even large amounts of this something, has been memorized? These unfortunate children have never been taken past the first level of learning, the memory level. And yet the old colony schools are not the only schools where teachers make the same mistake, albeit in less obvious ways. Let's see, the teacher thinks. What answer is the teacher's? And that's where it ends. All right, what are we talking about when we talk about flexibility in teaching approach? Yes? All right. All right, I appreciate that. What she was saying is each child is unique, and we need to be willing to adjust our teaching to be able to reach them. That's right. Joel was saying there's a way we learned it is not the only way it can be learned or other people can learn you know we tend to look at life by our own realities and that's okay we understand that but it's not like um, colorblindness intrigues me because you know I tend to think you know when I see the colors of our clothes it, it looks to me one way but do you know it probably doesn't look that way to you and if you've ever seen these little colorblindness test charts made up of circles of dots um, that form a number, dependent on your color interpretation, every year that I hand those around to my students out of even a small group of students, I always get three different numbers because of the way that we interpret color. Learning is just the same way. <laughs> and the way, we, uh, the way we learn. And we're going to talk about different learning methods. Is there more? Uh, what are we talking about? I appreciate this response. You're doing very well at narrowing this down. Was telling them and showing them. Yeah, I'm going to try from all different angles. Okay. All right. Coming at it from more than one way. Okay. But at the same time, the reason, some of the reason we're talking about this is we don't want confusion. I think, especially on our how to lessons when we're teaching you know, how to do something why if we sense that the students aren't getting it, sometimes we erase everything we wrote on the blackboard and start all over again, and there may be a place on that, but what we may have done is just add another slather of mess, all right? So we don't want to do that. All right, is there anything else we want to do uh, about, or anything else we want to say about what is teaching approach and uh, flexibility in teaching approach as far as what we're talking about? Right? Not getting stuck in a rut. There's a variety. We want, to, we want to expand that thought a bit too. All of us have a method. All of us have a style of teaching. And we don't really know exactly what that is. But since God gave us different personalities, we, we vary. We don't know exactly what that is before we've actually taught and taught for a little while. Right? But just because that's our style doesn't mean that we shouldn't um, adjust ourselves a bit for greater student achievement.
We're talking about methods, we're talking about approach, we're talking about style for getting the lesson across, right? Of course, we know that if we have the same action, we'll get the same results. If we use the same method, we'll get the same results. If we use the same style, we tend to get the same results. Same input, same output, right? And if the results are always good, well, then that's wonderful. But the results aren't always as good as we'd like. And it's those times, it's at those times that we need this topic. I think we're interested, we're all interested in more effective and more efficient teaching. That's the goal here. That's the goal. What do we want? What do we want for our teaching? How would you summarize effective teaching? All right. Helping the students enjoy learning or learning to enjoy learning. It's good. All right, moving them from one point to the next. Excellent. Learning a new behavior, a new thought process, a, you know, whatever the lesson was, right? Understanding, learning how to learn. Yeah, these are all good. Okay, so what we're doing is we're talking about making changes in our teaching approach to maximize the school experience. Um, clearly, this is primarily a, an academic-oriented topic. We're not really emphasizing character development here, we're working more off of the classic uh, teaching process basis. And we're going to, we, we must needs approach it from somewhat of a conceptual plane. We're here to give some demonstrations as well, but we're going to be talking about concepts. Four stages of teaching has given in Harry Wong's book, The First Stage of School. The first one is fantasy. In other words, we're thinking ahead, thinking, dreaming, planning. The next one is survival. Ah, now we're in there. All right. Next is impact, and last is mastery. To me, the last two sort of merge. Fantasy, survival, impact, mastery. If you haven't taught yet at all, if you're here looking forward to teaching to the first year, well, obviously, you're in the fantasy mood. Welcome. I spend a lot of time there myself. Um, and hopefully, this class will move you on to more effective teaching. But a special welcome, a special blessing to you all. <coughs> If you've taught before, you know what we mean by survival mode. Sometimes you teach and it seems like all those sandcastles that you build in the fantasy stage are getting smashed and washed out. Um, and that's okay. That's all right. But we need to learn from it. We need to learn from the frustration, from the lack of success, from the disappointment. Don't sink in that overwhelming feeling. Thankfully, the teaching craft can be studied. It's not all nebulous. It's not like black holes. They're out there somewhere. We don't really know what they are. We definitely don't want to go there because we never come back. It's not like that. We can, by diligence and observation, self-observation, which is kind of a difficult thing, student observation, which is a little less difficult but important, we can, by reading the signs, get better at what we do. We can move ourselves to greater impact and mastery with the help of God. Now back to those uh, four stages uh, fantasy, survival, mastery, impact. You know you've gotten through all those when you've taught for a number of years and you find yourself back at the other stage again. <laughs> you're away from school, but you're not. You're thinking, dreaming, and planning about it. You're back in the fantasy mood. All right. As somewhat of an introduction, uh, somewhat of a conclusion to this under introduction, I'd just like to say, repeat, we're simply talking about being sensitive to the needs of our students and trying to meet those needs. That's what we're talking about. You don't have to be a chameleon to teach. 
I don't think so. Any more than an electrician has to be a chameleon to electrify, or a plumber has to be a chameleon to plumb, or a seamstress has to be a chameleon to do the seam. Yeah, we have to change our approaches at times, but this is not something that's uh, impossible to do. We want this topic to be enabling, not disabling. I don't want to have anybody go away in paralysis because we talked about changing. Um, and change can be a little that way. It can be a little scary. It's always preferable to know what we do and how we do it, is it not? Well, of course it is. And so that's what we're talking about here. The danger of examining a how-to-teach subject can be a little bit like um, the same thing that happened some, when somebody asked Abraham Lincoln if he sleeps with his beard under the covers or outside the covers. He said, I don't know. But he said, I'll get back to you on that. So that night, the story goes, whether it's true or not, I don't know. He tried it under the covers with him, and that didn't feel right at all. And so he tried it outside of the covers, and you can finish a story, that didn't feel right at all. <laughs> all right? Um, or the thousand leg, or someone asks it how it decides which leg to move when it wants to go any place. If you have a thousand legs or a hundred, it doesn't make much difference, really. I said, I don't know, but I'll get back to you on that. It's the last time it ever moved, because um, it went out in analysis paralysis. Right. Well, that's, not, that's what we don't want to happen this morning. Um, we want to be able to look at ourselves, look at what we're doing and how we do it, and come away able to crawl better, able to rest uh, better, too. All right, I'd like to uh, go to three different places here today, and that is first, when not to change your teaching approach. Then we're going to talk about when to change your teaching approach. And then we'd like to talk a little bit about something that's going to happen to you sooner or later. If it hasn't happened to you, well, you probably haven't talked too long. Your board doesn't care very much about, about you. And that is what to do when your style is criticized or critiqued. It's tough stuff. All right, so first of all, when not to change your teaching approach. When not to change it. The first is when it's not broke. If it's not broke, don't fix it. Don't change just for the sake of change. If things are generally working, don't tinker with it. Right? We'll, we'll hit some of these uh, from a slightly different angle. I'm just going to leave it at that and move on to the next one. Don't change your teaching style, B, if it accommodates student laziness. The six, law six of the seven laws of teaching by John Milton Gregory, which was a book that was waved around here yesterday. Law 6 reads this way, learning is thinking into one's own understanding a new idea or truth or working into a habit a new art or skill. Okay, so the student must have brain activity. They must, uh, how does it say it? Learning is thinking into one's own understanding. Okay, and so if a, a style of teaching accommodates student laziness, Wait a minute, I'm getting a little mixed up here. Yeah, we're talking about when, when not to change. If you're changing to something that accommodates students' laziness, that's what I'm trying to say. Don't change. Don't change. All right, remember there was some talk about yesterday about do not feed the ducks. They get too fat and they can't fly. Well, I, I mentioned yesterday in the workshop that I had about that student that we changed their assignment for reading history. They didn't have to read history. All they had to do is be along for the ride, just show up for class, and that was it. 
we should not have changed our approach that time. And she's the one that came back when she was a mom and uh, in her low 20s with children of her own said, you made a mistake back there. I think she was actually sort of clearing her own conscience um, a bit. So don't change if it accommodates, if the change accommodates student laziness. Third one I would mention is if the teacher, don't, uh, don't change your teaching approach if your teacher is wobbly in your understanding of especially a how-to lesson. In other words, if you're there and you don't really know how, uh, maybe you can do the lesson yourself, maybe you can't, and, you, and you're having a problem communicating this to the students, you better not change your approach, right? In, in midstream, while you're teaching. Now the thing you should change is preparedness, okay? But uh, I've had it happen to me that the students aren't getting it. I think of especially math and English yeah, for, for this uh, particular point. Students aren't getting it, and they're like, you're like, uh, oh, yeah, this is not working. I'm going to have to change my approach. So you erase everything on the board, and you say, well, let's, let's look at it a different way. Um, if there's haze and fog in my mind, that's not going to work. All right? Don't change your teaching approach if there's haze and fog in your own mind. What you need to do at that point is stop teaching. And just say, folks, it's not getting through. Let's start again with this after break. And arrange with your co-teacher to take the, the recess period, uh, you know, coaching and, and monitoring. You study the lesson some more. Or, or throw it off till tomorrow. Right? Sometimes uh, that might be the wisest thing you can do. Don't change your approach in the middle of a how-to lesson if it's not clear in your own mind uh, what's going on, what to do, and how to do it. Changing approach for steps of a process midstream almost always brings student confusion. I, I, I uh, was asked a while ago to try to help a, a teacher who was having trouble teaching algebra. The problem was not that they didn't understand it themselves. I think they did understand it themselves. They could get to how, uh, they, 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 could, they could get how to do it, and they could do it themselves. They could demonstrate to me that they could do it themselves, but they couldn't bring their students along. And I, I really think the reason they couldn't bring their students along is because, number one, they taught by their own method, not the method that the book was teaching. And number two, when that didn't work, when their own method didn't work, well, then they'd erase everything they did and try it all over again. The students just simply got more and more confused. We're talking about when not to teach your, uh, when not to change your teaching approach. All right, uh, let's go on to the next one. When you're, if you're no longer teaching out of your own persona, each one of us has our own God-given style and personality. And I think we need to recognize this. I think especially in our culture, we tend to repress ourselves a bit. And that's all right. I tell you, there's a lot in me that needs to be repressed and needs to be eradicated for that matter. Right? But on the other hand, if you come to a teacher seminar such as this and you notice the way this one person, they just, they just they smile nicely. Or you like the way that when they're taking comments from the floor, they have this friendly little manner. Or you like the way that they do this, or you like the way they do that. And so then you run home and, and you start acting weird to your students. All right? That was not a good change. There were two pastors in one congregation once. I know them both and know them rather well. Um, and the one that was having trouble with his style, his trouble was as he was so sober, so sober. He looked almost dour. And people were kind of afraid of him. Well, of course, you know how these things work. The 
uh, people from the congregation were coming to the other pastor and saying, he, he scares me. He, he looks so sad. Where's Christian joy? And after a while, someone else would come to this other pastor and say the same thing. So finally, these two pastors having a good relationship, the one went to the dour one, to the one who wasn't really sour but looked that way, and says, you know, your pulpit manners, brighten up, smile more. Um, life isn't so bad. And so the next Sunday that this man was on the pulpit, while well, he was smiling at the wrong times, and, and eyebrows were going up and down, and, and then people came to the other pastor that had been his mentor in this and says, what's the matter with George? Something's wrong. <laughs> Don't change your style if it's no longer part of your own persona. Be natural. God gave you the personality he gave you. And yes, there are some things that we must uh, polish and we must change. But let's not get to that point where people are asking or thinking, our students are thinking, what's the matter with, what's the matter with George? What's going on? Last one I would offer about when not to change is don't change your method of attacking a study book or a textbook. Don't change midterm. Um, see, how does it say in the Proverbs, he that gathereth in the summer is a wise son? I think especially now we're not talking so much about the math and English how-to lessons. We're talking about study skills lessons. There's more than one way to attack a history book, a science book. Get that decided now before the school term starts and then stick with that as much as you can. Now, if your method of, of, of attacking those study skill subjects um, is really lacking and, and you realize you could make a slight adjustment, that's fine. And that's right and, and, and logical. But don't change a whole method. Uh, don't reinvent the wheel uh, about the way we're going to study uh, this whole subject. Some teachers prepare a syllabus for a subject where they write down the scope, the sequence, what the students will be required to know for each unit. They might be writing their own quizzes and tests. And being proactive works. The teachers that do that oftentimes do it in another subject the next year. You can't hardly do something that involving for all your subjects that you're going to teach in one year. But you can do that for one subject one year and for another subject another year and come back and refine the, the one that you did first later and so on. That's wonderful. That's being proactive. That's great. Um, and uh, uh, in that conference call that I told you about, uh, not so long ago, one of the we were discussing the question, what do you do with, with, with students who say, why do we have to learn this? And one of the teachers said, my students don't ask that question anymore since I started preparing a syllabus in the summer. Oh, how's that? How does that work? Well, I think it's because the students sense that the teacher is inspired about this subject. They know where they're going. They know why they're studying it. They know what they're going to be expected to learn. And so there's not a lot of reason to be asking anymore, why do we need to study this? Huh, good stuff, isn't it? But it takes work. All right, anything else you'd like to add before we move on? We're going to pull over here into a little uh, rest area. I'm going to quit driving. And, and uh, you're welcome to add anything about when not to to change, or maybe there's a clarification. Maybe I've been a little fuzzy in something, or maybe you just want to pound on a stake, scribble with a highlighter. Here's your chance. I'd pray for wisdom to sense something the day before it broke and change then. We're back to the thing of preventive uh, maintenance. Right? It's far better uh, to fix a thing to anticipate a problem 
beforehand and meet it that way than to meet it after it met you in ways that you might not be personally comfortable with. Right? The question is, how do we determine the difference between something that's broken and just complaining? Who determines when it's broken? All right. What John is doing, oh, go ahead, I'm sorry. All right, okay. How do you tell if a student is lazy? That's, that's a tricky business too, but yeah. What John is doing is a thing that all teachers sooner or later get pretty good at, asking a very specific question that has no answer. Uh, um, <laughs> Good question, great question. But to give one specific now, whoomph, now we have it. Okay, well thanks. <laughs> he said that uh, the Bible says, it talks about speaking, to, uh, speaks of being apt to teach. And if you're apt to teach, then you know when that is. I think I'm going to make my exit right there. Right? <laughs> um, but all those that are apt to teach stand up. <laughs> but all those that are apt to teach stand up. <laughs> we will in September. I mean, we're going to try. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, very good point, very good point. When I was sitting right here in this room a number of years ago, it was recommended that we ask um, our principal or someone who knows us well, someone whom we trust, to, to write us a letter and tell us how we could be more effective. I did that, and uh, uh, Mr. Danny wrote my letter. You know, I still carry, I won't tell you, well, yeah, well, you live pretty far from me. I still carry that in my satchel every day <laughs> because it's there and because it tells me the things I need to know. He told me where I was broke. No. Mm -hmm. as, as if you can, everybody can step back from the problem and 
I think uh, we teachers need to have the motto, and this is not a defeatist motto, but we need to just have the two-word motto, stumble forward. Stumble forward. You know, as long as we're, I can't march forward, I can't prance forward, but stumbling forward just sounds like something I might be able to do. Now, someone asked a professional tenor, tennis player, a world champion, what is your secret for success? What is your personal mantra or motto? And you know what he said? He said, I dink the ball over the net. That sounds like something you can do. Have you played tennis, full court tennis, or ping pong? I mean, table tennis? Dink the ball over the net? You know, oftentimes the way he wins is because his opponent won't be able to dink back. <laughs> and so he wins. All right? Um, and some of this stuff, you know, we, we would love to have a magic bullet that we can catch in our teeth. You know, everybody notices this happening. No, that's not effective. Teaching doesn't work that way. We just dink the ball over the net. All right? Yeah, I think we, very good point. Yes. I speak loud enough so everyone can hear so I don't have to repeat it because when I repeat it, I leave something out. <laughs> Right. And one of the things I want to try to do personally is I want to try to at least teach out of a sincere heart. You know, if, if I can be teaching out of a sincere heart, my real desire is not to jack me up, but to jack the students up. You know what I'm saying? Um, you're a whole lot better prepared to figure out what's broke um, and, and when to fix it. All right, let's keep on going. I think we're going to talk about ways we can dink the ball over the net and when we should maybe just change a little bit so that we can get the ball to go over the net a little bit more. Uh, when to change the approach, of course, this goes without stating maybe, but to keep your students with you, to keep your students with you. You must be reading your students and they, they will be reading you, right? But if you don't see that light in the eye, if you don't see that look of understanding, and this is a lot of different nuances for a lot of different people. I, and some of them are hard to read. I had a, I had a girl for, for, for uh, two years that at the end of two years I was only beginning to understand her because she gave me no feedback. She just sat there expressionless. But that was just the way God made her. It wasn't because she was disinterested right at the beginning. I felt I was sure she was disinterested. And I felt like running up and waving my arms in her face and so on. It wasn't necessary. She was listening. She was. So we need to change our approach to keep our students with you, and, and we know by getting those nonverbal cues. Watch when you teach. Are they getting it? Keep on going until they got it. Ask for feedback that demonstrates correct thinking. As long as you're not demonstrating correct thinking, you need to keep on teaching and then keep on going. If you aren't being followed, change your approach. Change your approach. See, how does the old saying go? If people are sleeping in church, someone needs to get a long, sharp stick and poke the preacher all right see it's a preacher thing it's a teacher thing all right don't let the students wonder law two 
of the seven laws of teaching says, the learner is the one who attends with interest to the lesson. It's, yes, it's some their responsibility, but generating that interest is a lot our responsibility. And we need to change our teaching approach until we can understand, until, they, until we have their interest, is what I'm trying to say. I have a book over there I'd like to get. Thank you. I forgot I needed this book, but I'd like to read to you out of The Seven Laws of the Learner by Bruce Wilkinson. Here we go. The first time I heard him teach, I said to myself, I want to study under that man. His name was Howard Hendricks. And the book I held up yesterday that was a black book with a shiny red apple on the, on the front, um, Teaching to Change Lives, was written by Howard Hendricks. This is written by Bruce Wilkinson. I entered seminary to learn everything I could from this master teacher. I wanted to learn not only what he taught, but also how he taught. During my four years of graduate study, I listened to Dr. Hendricks for more than 350 hours and always left his class instructed, challenged, challenged, and a step closer to God. By the time I was senior, I began to wonder if Prof even understood the word boring. After studying how he taught for four years, I discovered he followed a basic style. About three minutes before class began, his right foot began to bounce beneath the old oak desk. At the precise moment the second hand swept past 12, he raised his right forefinger into the air and announced, ladies and gentlemen, and delivered an opening one-liner that was so stimulating, all of us couldn't help but copy it down. After three to four minutes, he told his first joke. Eight to 10 minutes into the class, he would inevitably rise from his desk and draw a graph or a chart on the whiteboard, always a blue pen first, then the purple, and always with that unique squiggly underlining for emphasis. His rhythm was unmistakable, and it worked. Just ask any of the thousands who have trained under him. Now here's the interesting part. During my last year of seminary, I decided to give Dr. Hendricks a test. I wanted to see what this master teacher would do if one of his students would not, no matter what, pay attention in his class. I sat in the back right-hand corner of the classroom next to the only window and decided to gaze out that window the entire class session. Since there were only 30 students in the class, he was sure to notice. I took off my watch and started timing. What would he do if he couldn't get my attention? As I expected, he started off with a bang and delivered his usual one-liner. Although my hand began to tremble, I forced myself not to record the line. In other words, not to write it down. From the corner of my eye, I could see that he noticed immediately I wasn't paying attention. He broke tradition and in the first minute told a joke totally out of context. If I laughed, he would immediately know I was listening, so I discreetly put my hand over my mouth and continued staring out that window. As a two-minute mark passed, he got up from his chair and started drawing on the board much too eagerly. He again noticed that I wasn't taking notes, and he stopped right in the middle of his chart and didn't even finish it. He put the pen down and walked to the corner of the room in order to look down the aisle at me trying to make eye contact. Sweat beaded on my brow, but the seconds continued ticking by. I wasn't going to pay attention. Finally, he broke. The master teacher almost leaped down the aisle and yelled, Wilkinson, what on earth are you looking outside in that window? With a sheepish glance, I turned around and said, uh, nothing, prof, sorry. I looked down to my watch and determined his grade. 
Only three minutes and 37 seconds had passed. Incredible. His tolerance for one student not paying attention was limited to 217 seconds. All right, that's when to change your teaching approach to keep your students with you. All right. You might want to read the rest of this book, eh? Um, just, I was delighted to learn that Gordon Gertzen, who was here yesterday, had this man as a teacher. All right, when to change teaching approach? The second one I would offer is to adapt to the varied learning styles. I'm just going to put up the different learning styles. Uh, you, can, you can find various ways to cut the pie on this one. But some, some people are more visual oriented. Some are more auditory. Others are more kinesthetic. Others are more Okay, these we use very easily and, and we can use them very effectively in our classroom. Visual simply means you see it. That's why I just used a visual approach here by writing this on the board. Auditory, of course, has to do with our ears. All right? We call an auditorium a room where people sit to listen. All right? But then kinesthetic has more to do with body movement, project, uh, younger rooms use this, scissors and glue, matching exercises when students are drawing lines. Right, that would be kinesthetic exercises, drawing lines to match, and so on. Tactile means the touch gate, feeling something, getting your hands on it. And of course, many of our subjects at school, you can't really feel a fraction. Um, you can't really do that so much. But you can use um, the eye gate to show what a quarter of a pie is, and so on. Um, so we need to change our teaching approach if. Uh, one of our students is particularly weak or particularly strong in an area. One, one teacher uh, I, I was visiting with this summer, he has taught for many, many years, over 30. He was my teacher. But he said that last year he did one of the hardest things he ever did in that he allowed his uh, one upper grade history class to go out and read their history lesson together. He said he had never done that. He just really despised the concept of the students walking out to read a lesson together because he had bad experiences with that kind of thing. So he decided a long time ago he's never going to do that. Well, this one young fellow, he, he could not get it through the visual route only. But he was very intelligent. It wasn't that he was missing, uh, you know, had missing links there. It was mainly that he needed to hear it read. And so this teacher recognized that he needed to hear it read. And so he broke his tradition, just like the master teacher here, uh, Hendricks, did, and allowed the students something that he was actually personally opposed to. But I suspect that he had put other things in place to be sure the right things happened. We're talking about when to change, to, um, to be able to appeal to a varied learning style. Right? Um, of course, you, you may dislike it, but we're here to serve the students. We're not here to make it likable to us. I had one student who had test phobia. Now, why he had test phobia, I'm not really sure, but we did allow uh, him to take tests home to a more relaxed atmosphere and working through the parents um, that was workable and not something you would want to do for everybody. Another reason we shouldn't change, uh, that we should change our teaching approach is to employ more of the nine teaching techniques. Now I'm just going to write these on the board again. If you're going to teach a class, whether you know it or not, you're probably going to follow one of these nine methods. And what we're doing here right now 
is lecture. What we were doing is discussion. Right? And we were also doing this. Questions. Right? Number four is illustration. And an illustration is basically a very short story. And number five, then, is the story. Right? I think these two sort of go together. But when I use a simple simile and say, you know, he ran like his pants were on fire, that's an illustration according to this. But then the story would be more what I read to you out of the book. All right, six then is recitation. Seven is visual aids. Sure, I am writing on the board. We have an example of visual aids. Eight is the project. All right? Write a report, give a summary, make a science poster, uh, that kind of thing. And then number nine is review and test. All right? So that's uh, the nine teaching techniques. I got that again straight out of the uh, teacher development course, which we were talking about. Each one of these has their place. And I think the more of these that, that we use, the broader our appeal. Okay, some of us are just happiest with lecture. Well, if you find yourself with a propensity towards lecture, then what you need to do is move yourself into incorporating more discussion through questions. Some of us will teach all day and hardly tell a story. Others of us will teach all day and hardly teach the lesson because all we did is story. Okay, so you know, find yourself on this list and make the appropriate adjustments. Right? There's a place for recitation. If you're not chanting history dates when you're studying American history, well, maybe you should be chanting history dates. Um, visual aids, if you find yourself not using the chalkboard and if you don't have the marks of a teacher, well, then get some, all right? Each of them has your place, has their place. Don't use the one, don't overuse the one and the neglect of another. Um, so why else should we change our teaching approach? And this is basically saying the same thing, to employ a variety of presentation. Um, now I'm talking more about just the real specific methods. One of the methods that I like to use that students seem to like, which is hopefully why I like it, is I like to say, all right, we're, our lesson today, our English lesson is as easy as one, two, three. And usually when I say that, all of us like this thing as easy as one, two, three. And, you know, even if you buy a bookcase that comes in a carton that high and that long, it's, that's as easy as one, two, three, two. Why, why do they say that? Well, because we like things that are easy as one, two, three. So we're going to teach a lesson on direct objects, for instance. Um, First of all, we're going to talk about the definition. That's the one. Okay, folks, so let's start like Howard was saying, uh, Arnold was saying. Let's start where we know. We know that every sentence needs what two sentence parts? A subject and a predicate, all right? A direct object, then, is a word that comes after a subject and a predicate and completes a thought. Okay, so there we have the definition. This is an additional, a third sentence part assuming that they know what subjects and predicates are. I'm, I don't know what level I'm on here, maybe fourth or fifth grade, I don't know. All right, All right now let's talk about a dem the demonstration. All right, so um, we can give a subject and a predicate. The subject, let's use for this illustration, is Bill. There's our subject, and here's our predicate, kicked. Now, direct object is a word that follows those two words, Bill kicked. We're talking now about the two in one, two, three. So what do you want Bill to kick? 
the ball. Bill kicked the ball. There you have it. Okay? So now we know the definition of a direct object. We've had a little demonstration. And the other thing we can do yet is we can diagram it. And we do that like this. You put the subject here. You put Bill here. This is as easy as one, two, three, isn't it? Bill kicked. There's your predicate. And direct object, the ball. Okay? Easy as one, two, three. Folks, you know your English lesson for today. Come on up to the board and let's uh, work with it. Okay? Students like that approach. They like easy as one, two, three. And if you use that often enough, you're going to find that you can tell your students, well, now today your English lesson is as easy as one, two. There's not even a three there. Right? Oh, this, this sounds good. Or sometimes you can tell this lesson only is as easy as one. Okay? Employ a variety of presentation to get students interested. Change your method to get students interested. Use this kind of thing. Uh, one of the other effective things that I learned along the way is if you're using um, especially Rod and Staff Math is what I think of when I think of this, or Rod and Staff English, they have a section called class practice at the beginning. Well, I have an understanding with my students in a multi-grade setting, when I'm teaching multi-grades at least, that if they do the class practice before I ever came to them, well, then they get extra credit that they can write on the top of their paper, plus 1% for every problem they got correct out of class practice with maybe a limit of three or four. Is that okay to do that kind of thing? Does it motivate them? Well, sure it does. And we can change our approach uh, to incorporate some of this kind of thing. Uh, maybe if you have a particular student that is uh, easily given to intimidation, well, maybe you just ought to sit down when you're teaching that class. I've needed to do that kind of thing. I've needed to do that kind of thing in parent-teacher interviews. School board talked to me one time and said, you know, these parents are, are not happy the way the last parent-teacher interview went. Oh, really? How's that? Well, they said that you were intimidating. Oh, I see. Well, I didn't know I was intimidating. Did you know I was intimidating? I didn't know that. All right. Um, so what are you going to do? Well, that time I sat on the floor. Um, but that might sound strange, but that particular time I had a dry race boards and stuff such that we were going over achievement test results and the other parents, I had an easel here, but those parents, the easel wasn't around, so you know, I just, just told them I'm just going to have to get down here. And, and, and you know what they said? They said, we had a really good interview at uh, that time. <laughs> I don't think I did anything different other than sit on the floor. All right? You get the idea. You get the idea. Um, maybe you want to try another approach. The students will teach this lesson. That can be done. I think there's a lot of good to be said for that, done in, in moderation. Um, student can teach a lesson, and, and, and they like it, and I like it too. Another reason we should change our teaching approach is to boost efficiency and effectiveness. Boost efficiency and effectiveness. Now, I want to be careful with this. I, I really don't think that we need to have a lot of variety just for variety's sake. Now, I personally don't do balloon day or fruit salad day. I can't. That, that to me, is confusing. And maybe I need to develop a little bit more in some basic area. I'll, I'll admit to that. All right, but this thing of popping a balloon to decide what to do for the day, come on, get real. All right, I, <laughs> um, does it, let, let's stop and think. The reason we use variety in our teaching approach, as we just said, is to boost efficiency and effectiveness. Now, if it improves, improves your efficiency and effectiveness to get pins out and pop balloons, fine. But that doesn't work for me. And I don't think it would work well for my students either because that one doesn't work well for the teacher. Okay? Easy on me. All right, here's another one. 
another reason we should change is to use more royal roads to the mind. The five senses are called the royal roads to the mind. And the more of those five senses uh, which you can use, the more roads you can use to feed them data and to feed them information, the more effective you will be. The five senses are, let's go. Okay, smell, there was something over here. Uh, feel, taste, hear, sight. Okay, so the more of those that you can use, the more effective you, would, you can be. I remember in a lesson when I was in school on digestion, um, our teacher was teaching us how saliva begins to break down um, the, the food that we eat and begins the digestive process. And he said that saliva changes starches to sugar. And he said, now we're going to demonstrate this. Now, he also was explaining how that sugar then works on our teeth and, 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 and so on, which is why, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a thing of food and not brushing your teeth and not good uh, oral hygiene that creates uh, teeth decay. Now, we're going to demonstrate this. So he handed out saltine crackers, and we had to chew and chew and chew and chew and chew. Nobody was allowed to swallow. All right, five minutes later, we're still there chewing, at least those of us who hadn't sneaked swallows. All right, and sure enough, if you chew a saltine cracker long enough without chewing, swallowing, it will taste sweet. And for most of us, it didn't work. But the girl it did work for was wearing braces, and it got stuck in there, and she couldn't swallow as effectively as some of the rest of us. Okay, what was he doing? He was using one of the roads to the mind that we don't often get to use. You can hardly taste math, but you can taste in science. So taste, it's another royal road to the mind, right? Maybe you can smell it. We were studying reptiles when we were in fifth grade and we ate one. It was a turtle. I would still eat snapper soup today at the drop of a hat. It's a pleasant memory from school, right? You can get it on the store. Better not look at the table, I mean, uh, not the table contents, better not look at the ingredients because it has a lot of sherry in it. All right, another way that we can, uh, that, that we sh or another reason we should change is to get the lesson learned yourself. And we had talked about this before, but change your approach if you know you aren't prepared, but change before the students get there. Change before the students get there. Right. Teaching will involve study and lots of it. And I'm repeating what we heard before. But I believe that much of the burden of this topic, academic achievement, it could be taken care of if we would just prepare more thoroughly. Be proactive. It's hard to remember all this stuff when you're on your feet in front of your class. But a lot of your work, you're not on your feet in front of your class. Use that time effectively to get yourself prepared. And you need to change your style if you're just too uh, frustrated and unsure of yourself when you're teaching a class. All right, we're going to go next to what to do when your style is criticized. But you were thinking, if you have any of those thoughts you'd like to share, questions you'd like to ask, things you'd like to scribble on with a highlighter, posts you want to pound, here's your chance. Which one? Ah, let them substitute for a day. There's an idea. Okay. 
What to do when your style is criticized. It's difficult to take criticism well, but criticism about your style, um, that particular type of criticism, it seems to be easier to think of that as a personal attack. Right? Because as we said, each one of us have our own style because of our God-given endowments. Right? And so if someone is criticizing your style or, or, or your method, why, it's, it's difficult. But listen up. I think one of the things we need to do is we need to uh, think about it, that the giver means it well. I really think they do. I think that that's the best way to receive that with that attitude, that the giver means it well. After all, it probably wasn't easy for them to come and share with you. At least I hope it wasn't. It probably wasn't. I, I don't think we're working in a malicious crowd. We're not swimming with sharks. Okay, I think generally that's the way it is. And uh, think of it rather as constructive feedback. You see, if these people aren't sharks, well, then they want us to succeed. See, so think of it as uh, constructive feedback. I had spent a, 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 a term on the school board, um, not at the school where I was teaching, but at our church school. And, you know, it was a good experience for me. I think school boards mean well, and, and that helped me uh, realize that more. You know, you really have, we really have a hard time getting outside of ourselves and looking back on ourselves and seeing ourselves as others do. One of my fellow staff members told me one time after school, we were discussing a challenge that we were having. We were having choir practices, I remember, and students weren't on task, and it was getting very frustrating to me. And so I did something, and it was with a capital S. Right? He told me later, he said, I really don't know how effective that was. He said, you were starting to look pretty stormy. He said, even I was starting to get a little scared. And I was like, scared? Why are you being scared? All right, that's what I wanted to say. All right, that's not a good way to respond to it. No, the better thing, wow, scared? Why were you getting scared? Well, I didn't know what was coming next. All right, hmm. Remember those things. Should I defend myself and should I tell him it wasn't so bad? No, 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 don't tell him. He's the one that's actually doing me the compliment by coming to me, right? Is he out to get me? No, no, he's not out to get me. I had a, I had a situation once where there was, a, I think it was a sixth grade girl, where she just seemed so timorous and she seemed so scared and she really wasn't succeeding well in school. And finally, about the third week, I really wasn't sure where we were headed. And I, I didn't, I maybe should have gone for advice, but I hadn't yet. One of the school board members came to me and said, how's it going with this particular girl? And I went, wow, why are they asking? Hmm, interesting. Well, I said, actually, I'm not sure where we're headed with her. Well, what are you seeing? And I told him what I was seeing. This is what he said. You're too aggressive. So back off. Give her space. How can that be true? I'm not aggressive. <laughs> what do you mean I'm aggressive? You know? <laughs> me? Get real. Here's my fist. <laughs> All right? But when I stopped and thought about it, and as he helped me understand, she was the oldest in a family of girls who had a very recitant father. This was the first time she had to interact with a male figure, as she was then. Hadn't thought of that before. Okay? And as I backed off, and as I got a little more gentle, and got a little more, whatever, just gave her more space, things went well. They really did. Okay? Um, listening to advice really can save the day. I listened to, I, I uh, had, well, by listening to constructive feedback, you can learn a lot of things. You really can. I learned not to shout in the microphone about fire at a teacher conference one time by listening to constructive, by listening to constructive feedback.
right? Well, finding the right method isn't all that complicated. It really isn't. Remember, not everyone thinks like you do, just like that colorblindness chart. Not everyone sees like you do the same colors. Well, not everyone thinks like you do. Number two, we're in the service industry. And when you're in the service industry, it's not about you. It's about them. And if you don't like that concept, I don't know. <laughs> Go make gravestones. Maybe that would be a good idea. And you can get along easy with your customers there. Right? But when you're in the service industry, you're working for others. You're not working for yourself. Right? The third thing, in summary, stay where you can lead them. Know who you're leading and then lead them. Try to lead. We're not developed that further, just go on to the fourth one. Identify which of the teaching te techniques you can use more. Okay? And also remember that criticism is really the highest form of honor. All right, your turn again. Say that once more, you think? I think it's crucial to long-term Yes. And I read a quote that I like to use, and that is, do not attribute to malice what can be explained by Do not, one more time, do not attribute to malice. To malice, what can be explained by stupidity or ignorance? What can be explained by stupidity or ignorance? Yes, yes. Well, when you're a teacher, you are a fish in a fishbowl that people can see you from all angles. They see you at supper time through their children's eyes, and they see you from their own perspective, from their own... It just goes on and on. We just got to be comfortable with that. And the way that I find the most effective way to be comfortable is I don't think about it too much. I am who I am. I'm doing my thing. Yeah, I, I guess my father always, uh, the question is, um, what do you do if a parent comes to you and wants you to change something, but they don't know what? Okay, my father ingrained in me pretty strongly that it's fine to criticize uh, or, or, or complain. Um, it's fine to talk about something that's not working well, I should say. But if you don't have a better suggestion, then you're a complainer. And we spank for that. Um, <laughs> um, there's, there's some truth in that, what you, but with a parent, of course, listen nicely. But, you know, really, if they didn't have any suggestion, um, think about it, pray about it. If nothing else comes to your mind, then move on. Okay. That's right. And sometimes just talking with the parent with no resolution forthcoming fixes it. I don't know how that works. Maybe because I'm a man. I'm... Okay. Go ahead, Aaron. You know, I'm not looking at the problem with the parent, he's not looking at the problem with me, I'm not looking at 
going on. We're both going in the same direction. And then, you know, you need to do some kind of mentally. Yep. That you're in it together. You're not competitors. sure you're keeping up your communication. Oh. Yes, in the back. Thank you for that. Uwe, you had a thought? No, nope, his thought. Okay. Reminds me of uh, General MacArthur and Truman. Did I say that right? He was, uh, MacArthur could not take orders because he always said, you're not in the field. You don't understand. And he ended up getting recalled from the Korean War. Um, it was an extremely unpopular thing for Truman to do because he was an effective uh, general, but he wasn't taking orders from headquarters. <laughs> You're excused if you uh, if you need to be and want to be, but if there's more thought, I don't want to don't want to stifle that. All right, Lord bless you with your uh, responsibilities this coming year. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.